first service, I started with the little disclaimer, Pastor Aaron probably has it right, that he prints out his notes because got to church this morning and saw not all of my notes survive the trip here electronically. And for the third night in a row, I had trouble sleeping and was telling my wife that I had seven sermons floating around in my head. So if something happens, I'll be ready either way. <clears throat> so trigger warning, we'll be here for six hours while I go through all seven sermons. No, though I did actually go for 51 minutes in the first service. So if you have little kids, be ready. If you took NyQuil for some reason before church, don't snore too loudly. And it's also funny, I realized this week, 54 weeks ago, I preached a sermon and gave a mini seminary lesson on chiastic structure and what that looks like in the Bible, and I got excited that I could go through some of the dozens of chiasms found in the book of Galatians, because I found at least four in this little passage alone, but I'm not going to bore you with another language lesson. We're just going to focus on history today, so be ready for a long history, because I'm covering all of it. Still slightly joking, but we are going to start by considering people we read about in the Old Testament, a couple who were given a command by God, but chose to listen to a suggestion instead. Brothers who had work to do, and one of them got envious of the other. People who disregarded God's expectations and were destroyed. Brothers who had frequent disagreements. People who were in slavery were freed and then complained about how horrible their lives were and how much they wished they could go back to slavery because of how great it was. People who were told obey God and it will go well with you, and they chose to listen to neighboring gods instead. People and kings who said, I can do what I want, and ultimately ended up in exile. People who try to say, today, I can do whatever I want. And whenever I read this passage in Galatians 5, I always think back to about 15 years ago when I started getting my life back together. After two years before that, it was actually June, 17 years ago, I said to God, I'm going to see what it's like to try and live without you for a month. And 19 months later, he started to get my attention again. It was during that time that we get to 15 years ago, and I read Galatians 5 for the first time in a long time, and I go through the works of the flesh. And I thought, 15 years ago, wow. I've done 
13 of the 15 things listed in here in the last two years. And I'll tell you what, I thought that was pretty bad, but the more I study Galatians 5 and God's word, the more I realize I didn't realize how horrible I had been during those 19 months. And maybe, like me, you can look at this list and think to yourself, am I any better than Adam and Eve or Cain or anybody in Israel? For centuries. But thankfully, we get to the end of Galatians chapter 5, and I hope with me you find the encouragement and the hope God gives us that we are not left to our own devices, that we truly can come to freedom from ourselves in Christ. So we should start with the question. Who exactly do we think we're gratifying when we start in verse 16 of Galatians 5? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And if you're like me, you know there are many things that we want to do. There are many things that we think feel good. There are many things that they might not even be inherently bad. But there are also things we shouldn't necessarily be doing. If we are in church today or listening online or even later, We're probably seeking to live good and godly lives. And a good church, good pastors and leaders, will point out that even as Christians, we have this tendency to fall short. How do I know we have this tendency to fail and not live perfectly good lives? I personally look at my own life, like I've said, I've done a lot, especially during that 19-month period in my own life. Maybe, if you're willing to be honest, most, maybe all of you, are willing to look at yourself and say, yep, I can tell you exactly where, when, how, how often I fall short. We know that Greek word, hamartia, throughout the New Testament is our word we translate as sin. And it literally means falling short of the target. How many times do we mess up? How many times do we look at God's perfect standard and miss? We honestly know it's a lot. How many times do we look at ourselves and go, oh yeah, I want to do all these good things. Why do I keep doing the bad things? And we can start beating ourselves up and we can start thinking to ourselves, what am I going to do? Because we know nobody in the New Testament ever did that, right? Though in Romans 7, 
Paul did give us a little encouragement. I like to call it a backhanded encouragement. <laughs> because I'm sure we all see ourselves the way Paul saw himself. Because in Romans 7, starting in verse 7, and yeah, we're going to be reading most of this chapter. Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin, this thing that points out our sin, that makes us feel like we are sinners. The law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do... What I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So we are able to see that the law is good. It shows us God's character. But we also know our own sinful flesh is right there going, you can't tell me what to do. You say I can't do this? That's not what I want to do now. Oh, I have to do that? I don't want to do that. But even if we delight in the word of God in our inner being, we can see in our bodies another law waging war against the law of mind, that we are captive to the law of sin that dwells in our body. Like Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I still fall short. We tend to be content to live our lives assuming we're living well. And then God's law reminds us we keep falling short. And before anyone in our world can assume that any of us are doing okay, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 2. All have sinned that God has written his law in our hearts so that our own consciences betray us. That we know what we should do, 
and we don't do it. So nobody has any excuse. They are all caught. We are all enslaved to our own sinful desires when we're left to our own devices. We want to be our own Lord. We would rather gratify our own sinful, fleshly desires than seek God. But, as pastors Scott and Aaron have pointed out in the last two weeks especially, if we are found in Christ, we are set free from the confines of the law. So are Paul and I saying that we don't have to obey the law at all? No, of course not. What we're really saying is it's a relationship. Is the law gone? No. But think of it like any relationship. We have these unspoken rules that we all follow. And specifically in the marriage relationship, what is that unspoken rule? Sometimes we say it in our vows when we get married. Yeah, there are other men, there are other women out there, but I'm devoted to you. Another person comes along, we might find them attractive, but we turn to our spouse, oh no, I know you, you're better, I don't even need that. The temptation changes. It can even be lessened. It doesn't necessarily go away, but it can be lessened. So too, in Christ, we are set free from the law in that we're not striving to obey. Instead, we are striving to love God. We are not confined by the law. We are confined by love that is open and says, I don't want to hurt another. I don't want to hurt God. I don't want to keep rebelling against God. I want to love him. So we are free to choose to please God rather than gratify our own sinful desires. So now, Paul has told us twice, Romans 7, Galatians 5, that our flesh keeps us from wanting to obey. Even though we have this relationship, even though we're set free from the law, we still have these things that keep us from consistently wanting to obey, let alone obey. But in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can fight back. We don't have to live by our passions. We can cast off this yoke of slavery to sin. We can willingly put on that light and easy yoke of Christ. We can say, I don't want that burden. I want to love you. The law reminds us that we can never measure up on our own. But when our faith is in the Son of God, the Father looks down on us, and he doesn't see us. He sees the faithfulness of his Son. He empowers us with his Holy Spirit to walk in the same righteous faithfulness that his Son did. But there are many people, it's not just within us, it is other people out there in the world who will try and twist God's goodness, God's law, even 
their own relationship and try to get us to twist our relationship. So we continue in Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, <clears throat> sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I mentioned a bunch of my notes disappeared by the time I got to church. I still have all of my definitions. <laughs> so we're going to quickly go through this list and explain what they really mean. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. These clearly go together. Sexual immorality in our Bible is translated from the word porneia, where we get our word for pornography. Literally means anything sexual outside of marriage. Why do we call it pornography? Because Jesus had to tell us it's not just physical. Even our own thoughts and emotions when they deviate from God's standard are just as bad as committing adultery. So most, if not all of us, are just as guilty of adultery even though we've never physically done anything. Obviously, impurity comes straight out of this because we taint the marriage bed by pursuing our own fantasies by pushing boundaries through personal gratification, by having friendships with somebody not our spouse that can often take us away from our spouse, emotionally, physically. Sensuality It was 18 years ago I first heard somebody teach about sensuality. Even though I've heard people teach this passage many times, the first time I heard the word Galatians was in the year 2000 as a new Christian. But 18 years ago, four years after becoming a Christian, I heard somebody teach on sensuality because it's not really talked about, right? <laughs> Except 18 other times throughout the New Testament. Jesus, Paul. Peter, James, John. They all talk about it. Sensuality is that need to be validated, to tempt others. The Greek word actually implies the strutting rooster, the one who's, look at me, don't I look good? You know you want a piece of this. It's the people who dress for attention. And even though historically, most teachers and preachers I've ever heard of have said this is clearly the sin directed at girls and women. But Caitlin and I just yesterday turned on the TV so that we could watch an episode of Star Trek because we're funny like that. And there's an ad. We're on Amazon Prime, too. And there's this ad 
with shirtless men walking around. Is it just women? No. It's anybody who tries to be sexy, who tries to push boundaries, who gets into a relationship and asks, how far is too far? Wrong question, right? All of these point us to idolatry and sorcery. I don't think I need to explain idolatry, putting something in the place of God. Sorcery. Some translations say magic. The Greek word for sorcery is pharmakeia. We get our word for pharmacy. So am I saying all drugs and medicine is bad? No. It's okay, <clears throat> usually. Much medicinal research is actually really good, but this carries the implication of using drugs or magical manipulation to alter reality or our perception of it. There is some good medicine out there. I have even heard some people use this passage, though, to help teach something that was developed in the last two years that got pushed on people. See, pharmacia, there's the bad one. You have to get this shot or else. Am I saying the shot is necessarily bad? Short answer, I'm not going to talk about that. Haha. <laughs> From here, today, we can talk about it one-on-one -on -one if you want. Because yes, we all have our own opinions, but this pharmakeia can be boiled down to people trying to play God by creating new things from nothing, illicitly combining elements, trying to change things from their natural state to something it shouldn't be. It's people putting things before God or playing God. It includes addictions. It includes trying to do things apart from him. It includes seeking your personal happiness above all else. It includes trying to find eternal life apart from God. It includes saying, I was born in the wrong body. Therefore, I have to change it. But how can I say personal happiness can't be that good? Doesn't that help lead to things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, Enmity and strife, making people enemies by purposely spreading lies or gossip with the intent of causing harm. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, purposefully and malevolently seeking the harm of others verbally, physically, thinking we're better than they are because we don't do the things they do. We understand things better than they do. Who do they think they are? The Greek word for divisions? Heresis. Where we get our church word, heresies. People making up new meanings, new teachings, new definitions to make themselves look better, to make themselves feel better. And if you don't agree with their definitions, we just might see fits of anger, 
and envy, slipping into a rage, desiring to harm others who think differently from you, who act differently from you, thinking others have it better off because of some special privilege or advantage they got in life. Therefore, they need to be taken down a peg. If you don't agree with everything we say, you don't deserve anything. The two that seem weird in this list, drunkenness and orgies, I group them together too. We know what drunkenness is. The Greek word here is methai, which I found interesting because it sounds like our drugs we have today, meth. It is purely a coincidence, but it's a good reminder. Drunkenness, it's not just consuming too much alcohol. It goes back to that pharmakeia, drugs, constantly needing a high or to feel the buzz. But what does that have to do with our last term there? Well, the Greek word for orgies actually implies alcohol-fueled or drug-fueled parties where anything goes. So it's not just people getting together in groups to physically please each other, but it's also that. It's those all-night benders with all of your friends. It's going to Vegas for the weekend and letting anything because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas until you wake up the next morning at home and go, that was stupid. Thankfully, I haven't done that one. Okay. But when I look at this list, I told you 15 years ago, I went, I have done 13 out of these 15 things and things like these. But the more I have studied this, the more I realize that sorcery, witchcraft, I was engaged to another woman 15 and a half years ago. We would regularly go to these parties. We would get into fights with people about what certain things mean. We had our own fights, almost breaking up a few times. And then we'd go to these parties so that we could feel better and we would drink various cocktails, mixing different things together. Sometimes adding different things. You know, Goldschlager is a horrible drink. Who wants to actually drink gold? Remember when Moses made the Israelites do that with the golden calf that <laughs> there would be hookahs. Cool things to smoke through, right? Add alcohol as a base, it makes it better, it tastes better. We would also occasionally add other things, different kinds of tobacco to our hookah. This is all pharmakeia right there. And then occasionally it would be hey, this person has never seen a porn film. Let's watch one tonight. Hey, what if the group of us kissed each other? Because it's fun. I now know today, I have done everything in this list. Doesn't make me too happy, huh? And... Well, there may be some people who can truthfully claim they've done all of this, maybe even be willing to admit it. I pray none of you has to go through 
any of what I put myself through. But I came out the other side of all of that. When God finally went, stop being stupid. Listen to me. And I can read the parable of the prodigal son and go, I was the one laying in the mud with the pigs, wishing I could eat their slop. I pray none of you have to experience understanding the position of the prodigal son. But I also have a much deeper understanding of God's grace today. Before 15 years ago, I would frequently doubt my salvation. I grew up in a church that taught you can lose your salvation. So am I really saved? Am I safe? Oh, I just spent 19 months spending a month apart from God. <laughs> Telling people, you probably shouldn't call me a Christian. Yes, I believe Jesus lived, died, rose again, that he died for my sins, that he is the son of God. But I'm not living like it. Probably shouldn't call me a Christian. Am I a Christian? And then I get to the Word of God. So that today, no, I don't have a doubt. I even don't believe you can lose your salvation. Again, you want to talk about that? This isn't quite the time or place. We'll do more teachings on how to know you're saved. But it's honestly that I started listening to what the world was saying. I wanted to understand the world better. I already understood the world better than I needed to. But I wanted to understand it better. I wanted to listen to the people today who would say things like, as long as nobody gets hurt, what's the harm? It's not really your business. We can be whatever we want to be and do whatever we want to do. You started out somewhere different? Okay, you can be different. You think you were born in the wrong body? We can help you change your body. You think you're the wrong gender? You can be something else. You can be whatever you want. Just don't try to change your ethnicity or be a conservative white Christian male. Yeah, that was a joke. It's people who teach you can live your best life now. But God only wants to give you good things. He always wants you happy, healthy, and wealthy. We can do anything God can do. We're basically little gods. And people like to point out all of these accounts we hear, especially these past 20 years, especially the last 15, 10, 5 years, why should we trust Christians? Look at all of these so-called pastors and priests who are abusing people. Doesn't this just prove the church is merely another religion trying to control other people? And while it is true, there have been some good teachers, people who were orthodox, who fell, who became abusive in one way or another, who cheated on their spouse and are now disqualified for ministry. We should realize that while there are relatively good 
teachers who have done horrible things, let's start by realizing those outside of the church are at least as guilty of the same things. And the vast majority of those within the church who have been caught, there are a few people who were never surprised. There are a couple evangelists and preachers I like to watch on YouTube, listen to podcasts, who were able to point out, hey, 10 years ago I was saying, watch these people. They're going to fall in some way. They're going to be caught in some sort of sin. It is an expected sign that they're going to fall when you see people who are already guilty of heresies, making up new teachings, twisting scriptures, twisting the gospel to meet their own needs. <clears throat> so we don't get surprised when they're caught in these behaviors, whether it's emotional or spiritual abuse, physical abuse, sexual sin, addictive behaviors, because we've already seen their teaching. They've been twisting the word of God. And one of the biggest ones from the last two years, Hillsong church like I said there are a couple I like to listen to who are able to say hey four years ago six years ago eight years ago ten years ago here's my video here's my sermon here's my podcast I'm expecting to find them caught in sin why because the leadership of Hillsong tends to promote the prosperity gospel they have been associated with known false teachers and here's where I start to upset even friends and family of mine, I'm talking about associations with people who are part of the so-called New Apostolic Reformation. More specifically, people like Bethel Church out of Redding, California, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. People and places I actually started to follow for a while. But why do I mention them? These are people who claim we're supposed to be healthy all the time. God wants us wealthy. We should all be prophesying and speaking in tongues all the time. God doesn't do anything unless he reveals it to his prophets and apostles first. And all of these people making all of these prophecies, daily prophecies, monthly prophecies, annual prophecies, not a single one saw 2020 coming. They didn't see a pandemic. They didn't see rioting. Several even said, we're going to see Christian peace explode across our nation. They said, President Trump is going to win his second term. Oh, actually, he, he's losing, but he'll be back in a few months. He'll be back by this time next year. 100% of their prophecies in 2020 were wrong. So nobody was surprised when the Hillsong teachers fell. The thing about those other churches, though, is they have a different kind of legalism. You have to be doing these. You cannot do these other things. The things we say are bad, and they say don't do these. And then some of their teachings start spreading even to, into traditionally orthodox churches so that we can have 
people who teach the Bible well most of the time suddenly saying the same things people like from Bethel Church or International House of Prayer say that, yeah, you know what? We should be prophesying, and it is possible to occasionally get a prophecy wrong. It just means we were trying to prophesy under our own power. We just repent and move on. Even though Scripture says in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, and several of the prophets repeat it, read Jeremiah sometime, you are not prophesying, you are making up words from your own mind. If you say one false prophecy, you are a false prophet. It's not, oh, I made a mistake. No, God says you are a false prophet. In fact, if you say God said, and it doesn't come true, you have just said God told a lie. Jesus tells us, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What's the only unforgivable sin? To be fair, the deepest meaning of that is you deny Christ. The Holy Spirit's the one who regenerates us, who leads us to Christ. You deny that, that means you deny Christ. That is the full meaning. But Jesus also said it is attributing good things to the devil and bad things to God. Obviously, this is heresy. It is division. And then they try to say, don't touch God's anointed. And they make up lies and try again to prophesy. They are the people who teach we should be performing signs and wonders. They are the people who teach don't judge people for their lifestyle. Remember, love is love. Jesus never said anything about gay marriage. The word homosexuality isn't even in the Bible. It was inserted 120 years ago by people trying to control the gays. They were writing to a specific cultural context. We've progressed from there. God's word can change, it is not the eternal word of God. If God changes with society, those same scriptures say God does not change. That would mean he's not God. Does God's work, do God's words change? Does his personality, does his substance, who he is, change? These are people who teach us that our fruit is to admit that love is love. We need to be tolerant of each other's personal truths. We need to embrace our own fruitiness, come out of the closet, stop judging. Jesus said, don't judge, you hypocrites. Dissension. Hatred. You need to celebrate our diversity and inclusivity. These are the people who show their fruit by demanding their rights above everybody else's rights. Don't just accept me, celebrate me. And if you don't celebrate me, you're the worst. These are people 
who say they don't care what God's law says. They have personal freedom to do what they want, when they want. That it's okay to have protests, to storm buildings, ooh, touched on something there, huh? Riots, to destroy personal property, to declare, you can't tell me what to do, my body, my choice, unless it's a certain jab. Anyway, you have to do everything we say or we will make sure you do what we say. They attack others verbally and physically. Like I said, they storm building buildings, try to burn down buildings, spray paint buildings and cars, attack people verbally, physically. They demand we forfeit religious rights for preferences. Has anybody turned on the news at all in the last two weeks? Roe v. Wade overturned, gay rights. I tell you, what a pride month, huh? Celebrate everything we tell you to celebrate, and then the Supreme Court overturns everything <laughs> that those same people disagree with. We should celebrate. It's good to celebrate. But while we hear all of these different things being taught out there today, people who are saying this is the true good news, listen to our good news, listen to our gospel Paul reminds us, Pastor Scott has said it multiple times over the last few months, these are no Gospels at all. They are false Gospels, and I'm going to say it, they're coming from false teachers. Do not trust anything they say, even when they speak the truth. Yeah, you can hold on to that truth, but you cannot trust what these people are saying. They think they have freedom, but they are still slaves to their own passions, their own desires, their own sin. And I know I'm getting confrontational. Science and scripture is on our side. And even though some people may try to say I'm being divisive with my words or what happened to loving your neighbor, aren't you told to not use your freedom to hurt others but love Christ by loving others? Maybe you hear the same thing I hear. Did God really say? You will not surely die. You will be like God. We have freedom. We can do what we want. It's those people who misunderstand. Jesus did say, do not judge. And then he said, when you judge, don't be a hypocrite. What is the difference between a hypocrite and a Christian? A hypocrite says, yup, it was wrong, but I don't care. A Christian says, oh, I messed up again. I fell short again. Lord, help me change. Are there Christian hypocrites? Yes. But we are to judge each other and our world by God's word. So how do we love others? There are a lot of people upset right now based on all of these decisions the Supreme Court has handed down. It is okay to celebrate the decisions if we agree with them.
but then we turn to our lost and hurting world. We start by listening. Why are you so upset? Why are you hurt? Help me understand. But we reveal God's truth to them, even when it hurts us, even when it hurts their pride, their emotions. No one likes to hear their deplorable sinners. But we know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't like hearing we have spit in the face of God, that we have slapped him, that we have beat him, that we killed God. We have done it with our own sin. We have broken his righteous law. We are all guilty of abusing his words and his grace. We are the ones guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. The Romans physically did it. The Jews demanded it. It was our sin. There's also Jesus who told people that we don't take sin seriously enough. That getting rageful is the same as murder. That lusting is the same as adultery. And then told us, go and sin no more. It's Jesus who said, no one comes to the Father except by me, that only those who deny themselves and believe in the eternal Son of God will be saved from God's wrath and eternal punishment. That only through him we can inherit eternal life. It is this Jesus who willingly went to the cross to pay for all of our rebellion, all of our rage, all of our fighting, all of our lust, all of our immorality and impurity, our jealousy, our strife, our division against each other and against him. So how do we respond when we know that we are just as guilty as everyone else who is raging against the church, God's word, Supreme Court decisions, government mandates? Well, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. One of the things that blew my mind the first time I heard my other pastor, Scott, preach this message that I've carried with me for 20 years now, that word for fruit is singular. Paul is not saying you will see these nine different fruits in your life. Paul is telling us that we are looking at one tree, or in the words of Jesus, we are looking at one vine and seeing one fruit with all of its various parts. How do I know we still fall short? We might have eight of these nine things, which means we fell out of step with the Spirit somewhere. 
It should be a reminder that we need to get back in step with God. We need to listen to his Holy Spirit. Why don't I have all nine fruits? God help me. You are the only one who can help me. So that I don't fall back into that yoke of slavery to sin. We know those outside the church are still stuck in their sin. They don't have the freedom they think they do. We who belong to Christ have crucified our flesh, our desires, our passions, that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. Dying to ourselves doesn't sound like freedom. But just like Pastor Aaron told us last week, there is freedom in knowing boundaries. People can go into a building that might not be safe everywhere so that they can write scriptures and prayers on the hidden structure of a building. And we can see the beauty that is in the freedom of you can go anywhere in these limits. When we can turn and see the prayers of the saints, God's word being preached and taught and shared and given to each other for encouragement as we build up the church. Those hidden things, those silent prayers, those private prayer groups, those home Bible studies are all God's little scribblings on the hidden structure of the church. And we find freedom in these limits because what do we see? We see love for God and others, joy that is difficult to explain, peace that is difficult to understand, patience to deal with limitations on ourselves and from others, kindness reflecting the kindness of our Lord who saw our sin and still came for us. Even when we mocked and beat him, we see goodness in the midst of evil, faithfulness, when the easy thing is to compromise and settle. We see gentleness, that controlled strength that though we may be in the right, we don't seek retribution. We see the self-control when we want to give in, but instead say, Lord, I give this to you. So we respond when we freely choose the gospel, even over our own rights, when we get wronged. We do not concede to evil, but we stand up in the midst of it and we declare God's love and grace. We stay faithful to his truth. We show patience and kindness towards those who disagree. We be willing to listen to them, but then share the truth with them. Even when they turn against us, we remember, forgive them, because they don't even know what they're doing. Just like our all-powerful God did with us when he crucified his son. When they lose control, mock us, 
get violent, destroy property and lives, we show our self-control when we don't respond the same. We don't get overly angry. We don't get spiteful. We take the time to hear their hurting hearts, their fears, even their hatred, never relenting in truth, but standing in his truth. We walk with the Spirit. It is easy for us to give in to the passion of the moment, to say, God, they deserve it. Lord, do you want us to call down fire on them? Instead, we are crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We walk in the Spirit, knowing that like Christ died for us, we die to ourselves. We await our renewed bodies, but we walk in the renewal of our minds in the Holy Spirit. We even lay down our own rights to be heard and to be right in every argument. But we hold to the truth. We don't force the truth on others. We don't mock their arguments and actions, saying, why won't you listen to me, idiot? Which I heard a Christian teacher say this week against somebody, and I had to reply. Even when we wish they would listen to us as much as they listen to the woke left or even the conspiracy theorists, the conservative right, anybody in between, no, we stick with listening to God's truth. We tell them God's truth. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when, they, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 1 Peter 3. We have the truth on our side, but we don't make others listen. We speak God's truth to others, and we trust the Holy Spirit to change them. We can't do it. Only God can. They may rage against God and us, but while we go out into the world, we must remember what Paul reminded us of in 2 Corinthians 10. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Not to get even, not to be right, to obey Christ. We do this because we remember we are no different. We are just as guilty 
of rebellion, of raging against God, of falling short of the mark, sinning. But Christ has saved those of us who believe. How do we love this world? How do we walk by the Spirit? We are patient and kind and self-controlled, and we do not give up meeting together. We hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We consider how to stir up one another to love and good works as we keep meeting together, encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day of his return coming. We devote ourselves to the biblical teachings, the fellowship of the saints, the breaking of bread, and to prayers in awe of our God, who though he allows the evil to continue for a time, has promised he is coming again. The irony of the LGBT blah blah movement is co-opting the rainbow. As our elder Bill Swenson likes to point out, how great they're trusting God's promises that he will never again destroy them in a flood. And instead we see God fulfilling his promises when court decisions we've disagreed with for decades get overturned. We know we are in the world, but not of it, so we join with God in bringing heaven to earth, patiently, kindly, lovingly, with God's goodness, joy, and peace that surpasses all understanding. Because I know, like Adam and Eve, like Cain, like the people of Noah's day, like Jacob and Esau, like the vast majority of Israelites throughout history. I see myself too well in these works of the flesh, far too often. But I strive to enter through the narrow door, to enter the freedom of God's rest, that I may not enter into that same disobedience. I strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one sees the Lord. I strive for the freedom from sinfulness and bitterness that Christ offers. I strive for unity within the church with God's word. I trust in Christ to change me, to change the world. I strive to live a full life in Jesus and bring others along for the ride. Will you join me?